Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, brought to you by the team from the environmental policy magazine, The Ends Report. In this episode, we'll examine DEFRA's ministerial massacre. We've lost an environment secretary and at least three ministers at the last count. We'll look at whether we have a green king in Charles III. Then we'll look at how the Environment Agency is in hot water over a damaging abstraction in a protected Fenland. Then you'll be pleased to know that Jamie's back with one of his impossible quizzes. And after that, we'll be talking about Enz's first ever documentary called Seven, The Poisoning of Britain's Amazon, because we like a bit of drama. It looks at the pollution problems facing the river and rivers across the country. Then Simon Pickstone and Alice Fillon will be here to fill you in on how Europe's green hydrogen sector could cannibalise other renewable power sources. So, without further ado, let's enter the eco-chamber. I'm Rachel Salvage and I'm here today with Jamie Carpenter and Tess Colley and we're going to look at the big green news of the fortnight. Our first story is about the ministerial cull that has taken place at DEFRA. Since Trust took over, we've lost Environment Secretary George Eustace and possibly the shortest lived Environment Minister in history, Steve Double. We've lost Victoria Prentice and then last week, Zach Goldsmith was given the boot, although The Guardian says he's going to still keep his role at the Foreign Office, which will have environmental uh, uh, aspects to it. Nonetheless, uh, Goldsmith is gone. He's lost his domestic environment brief and he won't attend the Cabinet anymore. Um, He is a firm Boris Johnson ally and without question a man who has taken a lifelong interest in the environment. So, Jamie, what are people saying about why he's being frozen out of DEFRA? Well, yeah, there there are a few reasons. One one is, as you say, that he he is a a kind of a close ally of Boris Johnson and and his wife, Carrie. Um, There's a few other interesting things that that could have been a reason. One one is that we know that there's, there's some... Some beef between Zach Goldsmith and and Mark Spencer, who's been yeah, some bad blood there. Some bad there? blood, very mm, bad blood. Mm. So, so Mark Spencer was appointed as a minister at Deferin in this trust's reshuffle, but during the the Tory leadership contest, um, Zach Goldsmith went on Twitter and kind of suggested that that Rishi Sunak, the other leadership contender, had agreed to make Spencer the next Defra Secretary of State. And um, Goldsmith said that Mark was the biggest blocker of measures to protect nature, biodiversity, and animal welfare. This would be grim news of nature. He's, he'll be our very own little Bolsonaro. Little Bolsonaro, wow. Yeah, pretty strong <laughs> stuff. Strong stuff yeah, indeed. Yeah. What might the implications of Goldsmith going be, do you think, Tess? Uh, well, it's, it's hard, hard to say immediately because we don't quite know what his role will be um, within within the Foreign Office, as you mentioned. I you know I, I tried to get some answers from uh, either DEFRA or the Foreign Office last week, but they, they weren't willing to, to say much. Even I kind of asked to clarify what exactly his role as International Environment Minister currently uh, means for the Foreign Office, and they wouldn't confirm. Uh, so it's unclear. Uh, I think one of the big worries... Uh, for, certainly for conservation groups, is that he's taken a real leading role uh, on COP15, the big UN biodiversity summit, mm-hmm. uh, which is coming up in December, kind of doing lots of the kind of behind the scenes work on that. Uh, and if his new brief doesn't include that, there's there's a big question mark over who will pick up at such a, a late moment. Um, I asked specifically the Foreign Office if if he might, if that might be part of his brief and they didn't seem to know what COP15 was. So uh, that's good. <laughs> Excellent. Fantastic. <laughs> I've read somewhere that um, people are thinking that uh, Trust might plan to ditch some of Goldsmith's pet projects like the Animal Welfare Bill and the Trophy Hunting Man and stuff like that. But that seems to be very extreme. And it kind of paints the administration as some kind of Cruella de Vil and a, her bunch of sidekicks. I mean, <laughs> is that is it? are those things really in her sights, do you think, Jamie? 
Well, I think I think it's um, it's kind of where, where this leaves us is is that it does does seem that possibly the environment is is lower down the pecking order than, than it was um, previously. I think I think Mark Avery in his his blog recently said that um, this is a strange run to run a, a strange way to run a country. Really, uh, many people sadly leaving jobs they didn't really want, and others sadly starting jobs which they didn't really want either. <laughs> So, but, um, but I think there's, there's there's definitely an interesting thing around what what is what is Liz Truss's administration's kind of vision of of Defra. She's appointed um, Ranil Jayawardena as as Environment Secretary. He had a, a kind of role as a Minister for International Trade and um, was kind of heavily involved in trade agreements with Australia, New mm. Zealand, and India. And he's he's kind of when he's been talking about his new role, he's not really said anything about environment. It's all really about food security and and um, growth back in British farmers. Mm. Um, and there was an interesting piece in the Spectator suggesting that Truss has dismantled what what's been described within a circle as the eco axis of evil. Wow! So this is <laughs> so this is George Eustace, Michael Gove, and Zach Goldsmith, and apparently they stood in the way of her free trade philosophy, mm. and now have been consigned to the barren wilderness. Oh dear! So it's a bit, bit bloody, but <laughs> um, that might dramatic. be. Yeah, well, it's certainly interesting. Even Mark Spencer being put in, in into Defra because he did support Rishi Sunak, as Zach Goldsmith was very aware of, um, and Zach Goldsmith supported Liz Truss and represented her at the mm. environment of the Tory hustings. Um, and there's a big, all so far we've got Mark Spencer and, and Trudy Harrison, they both kind of identify as, as farmers and coming from farming backgrounds. Uh, so there's a, a real mix of trade, kind of trade interests with Ranul Jai Warden going in as Secretary of State mm. and then people with farming backgrounds I yeah. guess trying to speak to that audience because that clearly that looks like the focus is going to be that way rather than yeah. um, rather than environmental issues. Yeah, as we know, animal welfare and those kind of standards are sticking points in trade deals, given mm. that our standards are relatively high. And yeah, yes, we that's another that's another issue altogether, and one that we should probably get into at, in more detail in a further episode. Uh, Jamie, is there anything you want to say about Trudy Harrison or Mark Spencer or Ranul Jaiwadina or? Anybody else? Anybody there? else? No, I, I have to say that they're they're not they're not people that have really come come onto my radar before mm-hmm. before this reshuffle. Yeah. So I think they're, they're kind of relative unknown. So I guess, I guess that's um, if we're taking a glass half full approach, it could be that they, yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe they they have a uh, they have some good things to to say. Yeah, um, maybe. I'm, I'm struggling a bit with uh, the moment the idea of George Eustace being one of the good guys, but but <laughs> we are we are where we are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we know that Spencer voted for selling off the public forest estate in the past, and Trudy Harrison is backing the Cumbrian coal mine, which is really controversial. That's in her area. But Jai Warden, I mean, he used to be trade minister, but he was been on the APPG for endangered species. Is on the mm-hmm. hazardous substances advisory committee, which I think at the time when they they started to ban. Um, microplastics in some products and things like that. So there are, you know, I mean, there are some very, mm. very worrying things there and a few things to cling on to for dear life to yeah. <laughs> keep that hope alive. Mm. And Joy, Joy Warner did say in Parliament just before we went to the, the national uh, period of mourning that the, the animal welfare bill would keep going through mm-hmm. Parliament, but things things change yeah. rapidly. Um, but yeah, we could, we should, I mean, we may be seeing another announcement of a new minister potentially this week, otherwise it's going to be very big briefs yeah. for the two ministers. 
yeah, absolutely. Well, we will know by next time we're talking, maybe we'll have a new minister and maybe we'll know more about those bills. Our second story is about how water abstraction has damaged a protected Fenland and has consequently landed the Environment Agency in a little bit of bother. In a nutshell, Timothy Harris owns some land in the Ant Valley in Norfolk and Suffolk. It hosts important habitats such as Fenlands, lakes, uh, bogs and uh, rare plants like the Fen Orchid. It's also protected under habitats rules. Those are the regulations that the current government finds so irritating. More on that in previous episodes of the Eco Chamber if you want to look back. Anyway, since, 20, since 2009, the couple's been campaigning to stop the renewal of abstraction licenses that they say are damaging the site. And their campaigning and work has led to the Environment Agency reviewing the impacts of abstraction on three SSSIs that are within the special area of conservation. Now the couple has won a judicial review against the Environment Agency, saying that the review that the agency undertook was not effective and that a risk to the site remains. Tess, can you tell us what happened? Yeah. Well, so as you said, this this court case um, went to the High Court a couple of weeks ago, and it's quite a big deal that they've won it. Um, the campaigners argued that the EA uh, was legally obliged under the Habitats Directive, um, that contentious bit of legislation that came over from the EU, uh, which protects sites. They argued that the, the EA was legally obliged under that to protect sites like, like the Norfolk Broads um, by reducing abstraction, and it had failed to do enough uh, in this case. And the ruling, um, having won it now, the ruling will require the agency to investigate the impacts of abstraction on a much larger part of, of the the, um, the special area of conservation, the SAC, that had done previously, and crucially, like, to take proactive steps to to prevent harm on protected sites. And so the implications of this are quite massive because in deciding the case, um, the High Court applied um, up to now a little, little known piece of uh, legislation in the Withdrawal Act, the Brexit Withdrawal Act, which said that even if we've left the EU, rules which were previously um, directly enforceable uh, in the in the UK courts still are now just, um, mm. prior to Brexit, um, and this means that basically it's going to be much harder for the government to to change those EU rules um, than had like they previously thought it might be potentially it's going to put the cat amongst the pigeons, isn't it? Yeah. So that's the obviously the habitats regulations talking about, but there are other directives that will still have force. Which are the other mm. ones that might still yeah, well, from um, speaking to uh, Penny Simpson from Freeth, which was the law firm who represented the the couple in the High Court the, the other week, uh, she said that provisions within uh, the EIA directive and the landfill directive are, are likely to be impacted by, along with a host of other ones outside of the environmental sector. Yeah. Um, is really you know big big impact. And from other lawyers I've spoken to, that it looks like new primary legislation will probably have to be laid in order to overturn it or the, or the Withdrawal Act amended, which as we know in Northern Ireland is um not not is easier said than done. Mm. Um so yeah, a, a more difficult uphill struggle is mm. the way it was put to me that they're gonna face now. We get proper scrutiny to try and change these things rather than mm. kind of doing it by the back door. Uh, Jamie, do we do we know or do we think the Environment Agency might appeal the decisions? Um, we we don't we don't know yet, but I imagine it probably will do, and that that might be the, the, the that will probably be the first um, the first indication as to whether this 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 case stands. I mean, I, I guess when relatively recently it lost that big Wallace Quarry case at the High Court, yeah. and then and then appealed, and it did it the, the Environment Agency did overturn the 
decision. So, so it might be that it won't it won't like the the fact that it will be held to this judgment itself. And obviously, that the, as as Tess is saying, it does have far wider implications than that. And um, it's it, I find it amazing that how many years after the Brexit referendum we're still we're still Gosh, <laughs> talking about the, these things. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, it seems like this this stuff is going to be uh, here to stay for a bit longer. And uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg is probably if he's, this has come across his desk, he'll probably be spitting feathers about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd like to be a fly on the wall. <laughs> And I think, did the Environment Agency make some reference to resources when they were kind of responding or when asked to respond mm. to the to the decision? Yeah. So that was another interesting part of the ruling. The High Court said that um, a lack of EA funding was not a valid justification for failing to comply with its legal duties, mm. um, despite the fact that you could say that that was a big part of why they haven't Mm-hmm. you know done what they were meant to do yeah. um so no it's no excuse basically mm. and that 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 will have implications on many, uh, many environmental many areas, areas. <laughs> yes. interesting we will be, again be watching this space and we'll bring you any developments as they happen Okay, let's move on. And now let's have a quick look at whether our new king, Charles III, who has been championing environmental causes for decades, can continue to push green issues or whether he now, as monarch, is essentially gagged, being prevented from getting involved. Um, In 1970, Charles warned of the growing menace of oil pollution, chemical pollution into rivers and air pollution from smoke and from factories and all this kind of stuff. And he's, he's launched lots of sustainability campaigns and Recently, at the Glasgow COP, he called for a military-style campaign to tackle the climate crisis. What now, though, for Charles? What can he do, Jamie? Well, yeah, I mean that, that's that's a, a big a big question. So, I suppose, as, as, you, as you mentioned, there's a there's a convention that, that royals once they've ascended to the throne that they should, they should stay out of politics, and um, and Charles has has pledged to stand above politics. Um, when 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 he became king, or when he becomes king, well, he's became king, obviously now. Um, <laughs> um, so I think he was asked in an interview a few years about whether whether he'd be a meddling king, and he he said, "I'm not that stupid," and um, <laughs> said that any any suggestion that he would continue to lobby parliamentarians were, were nonsense. Mm. So um, and and I think that one of the things he's he's said sort of since since um, the queen the queen's death is that, that he he it'll not be possible for him to give as much as his time and energies to the charities and issues that he he'd previously been doing um and it is an interesting one about whether on on the one hand i i, I to me speaking out in favor of urgent action on climate and and biodiversity crisis doesn't really seem to me to be a political issue exactly. because they're the, 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 this is science and um and it shouldn't really to me be controversial mm. for a monarch to express support or general support for something that's already enshrined in law so yep. um, on the one hand you think well maybe he can sort of continue to be a voice but, but I guess when it becomes complicated is when when the government might pursue things that may may be seen mm. as damaging as I don't think that fracking I suppose is a good example of that then you can't really imagine that he'd maybe speak out against yeah. particular policies like that um so yes yeah, so that's a question I guess the other thing is how how does he use his weekly audience with with the prime minister to push the case for some of these things i can't imagine that he'll hold back in his views he seems very clearly has very very strongly long held views about these things and mm-hmm. I, I i i would not imagine that he would keep silent about these things even if those meetings are private and and we don't know what goes on behind closed doors mm. yeah i think i think that's right a lot of these things are so far above politics that you know, could you legitimately get stuck in on them? Um, I guess it's the solutions that become more political. Uh, mm-hmm. Tess, what do you think? What do you think he's going to do? Um, well, I, 
I don't think, yeah, I don't think we'll be hearing public statements or all that sort of thing from him. Um, I wonder if, I mean, even at COP26 last year, the, the Queen recorded a message and that that was, I mean, he did a speech, but the Queen herself um, kind of spoke about the importance of, mm-hmm. of tackling climate change. But I suppose, I mean, the, those high level statements are all well and good. It's, it's often the, camp, the campaigning and the more granular stuff where, where, where more impact can be had and you, you probably won't be able to to do that anymore. I guess what's what might be interesting is we all know that he is into these issues and his view on a lot of them already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so even if he doesn't express them anew, uh, when the government makes policy and it, and it does things, people will probably know in advance that he maybe doesn't support it. And I mm. wonder if that will affect the any political discussion around it. It's, it's, it's new ground really in having a monarch who we know what they think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it is. Maybe there's just going to be a lot of royal eyeball rolling and <laughs> not yeah. a lot else, perhaps. A few people have said that they expect that he's going to pass on this uh, this baton to uh, Prince William because mm. he recently launched the Earthshot Prize and has done quite a lot of good bits and pieces here and there. So maybe we'll just see more from William. Um, but I, th- I bet he's going to find it pretty difficult to keep Stumm, though. I mean, it's probably not in his mm. character, is it? So it'd be quite interesting to see. So, Jamie, do you have the quiz prepared for us? We've been very upset not to have one over the last few weeks. Yeah, well, I suppose if it's any consolation, you don't you don't have Chris Packham this week, but you've got my quiz instead. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I do have a quiz, um, and it it relates to the the uh, the recent reshuffle and and environment secretary. And, and one one of the things in, in looking at the new environment secretary, I was staggered to find that he's only 36 years old gosh so so I kind of feel like I've, I've maybe wasted my time here on earth <laughs> same here um, so this, this apparently makes um makes him the youngest ever environment secretary and like I said if that makes you feel old then you probably don't want to know about Europe's environment commissioner Regina Sinkovicius who was born in 1990 28 was the youngest ever European commissioner who, when his appointment was confirmed in 2019. So um, that's the preamble. (laughs) Right. Brace yourself for a very serious piece of data journalism. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) And and it's kind of taking a bit of a nod to the, I don't know if either of you have ever ever listened to the Match of the Day's top 10 podcast. No. 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 (laughs) (laughs) I'm losing losing you. So... um, (laughs) So I've got I've got a list here of the the top ten environment secretaries going back to 2010 when when DEFRA was created after the old Department for Environment Transport in the regions. So I'll ask you to to list the the five youngest people on the list, starting with the youngest. Um, and um, if anyone at home listening to this is daft enough to want to play along at home, then um, the, the names are going to be available in the show notes. So the list of the environment secretaries is. George Eustace, Teresa Villas, Michael Gove, Andrea Ledsom, Liz Truss, Owen Patterson, Carolyn Spellman, Hilary Benn, David Miliband, and Margaret Beckett. Is anyone anyone ready to have a have a go? Uh, I want I want I want to say David Miliband would be the certainly in the top five of youth, um, the youngest. Just give it a go. Give it yeah. Goodness. Okay. I, I, David Miliband, Liz Truss, probably in there. Um, I guess a bit, a bit of stab in the dark after this. Owen Patterson, George Eustace, maybe, and then I'm gonna go with 
<sighs> Teresa Villas. I don't. Rachel. Uh, I had Miliband Spell, Montress Villas, and then the last one I was tossing up between Ledsam and Eustace. I'm going to go with. Eustace. Right. Okay. Well, some good, good, good attempt there. So mm. the youngest actually is Liz Truss. Mm. So oh. only thirty-eight years and eleven months old when she became environment secretary. Mm. Then David Miliband at forty, and this is where it gets a bit surprising. And hopefully, I've calculated this correctly. <laughs> but according to my my maths, George Eustace was next, forty-eight mm. years old. Then Michael Gove at forty-nine. Oh. And then oh. Teresa Villas at fifty-one. There we go. Okay. Yeah. Dave's not aging well, is he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he is. Spry though, he's spry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Full of beans. Go. Yeah. So so yeah, so that's the that's the quiz. If if anyone's interested in the oldest environment secretary. Ben. Actually Margaret Beckett. Oh Beckett. Okay. She was fifty eight when she became environment secretary. So there right. you go. There we there go. go. <laughs> More success than usual. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Tess. That brings us to the end of Big Green News for this episode. The next stuff is our deep dive section. And in this episode, we wanted to tell you about our brand new Squeaky Ends documentary, which is going to be released on the 27th of September. It's the first time we've done a documentary and we're very, very excited about it. This one is about the River Severn. It looks at the reasons why it's so polluted, but actually it's really all about all our rivers and the factors that come together to allow them to be contaminated with so much sewage and farm slurry, among other things. So in that catchment uh, in the Severn Basin, there are around 400 rivers, 29 lakes, 33 groundwater bodies in the river basin, uh, but just 45, and that's around 10%-ish, obviously, uh, were found to be in good ecological condition in the Environment Agency's last assessment, which was 2019. Nationwide, the only 14% uh, meet that level, and none meet standards for chemical health. Uh, the Severn Estuary and its surrounding area is protected for bird populations, for migratory fish like salmon and shad, um, and all these populations are suffering. Um, 74% of salmon stock in England's principal salmon rivers, of which Severn is one, are classed now as being at risk. So, of course, the problem, it lies with water companies and farming industries, which are the main contributors to uh, water bodies failing to meet these legal standards. But as ENDS readers know very well, a major part of the problem is that the regulators, such as the Environment Agency, are not effectively managing those industries, industries so that it doesn't happen in the first place. Jamie, can you let the Eco Chamber listeners know why we kind of focused on river pollution and you know, what we thought we could sort of bring to light through the documentary? Yeah, well, well I, guess, I guess um, publishing a documentary like this is not is not something that maybe people would expect from a trade publication like ours and and, and I suppose what, what 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 we're actually putting out there when 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 it does go live on the 27th it'll be a half an hour documentary so something really detailed and, and um, with with very good production values and we'll also be publishing a whole load of, of material alongside it so things mm. like interactive maps and um, a special podcast as well yeah um, special podcasts special features, podcasts, so news features. stories exactly so there's a whole there's a whole load of yeah. of content um, and I, so I suppose there's, there's probably a few reasons why we've done this. I mean, one one of them, I think, that we we feel that it's um, very important for for ends as a, as a brand to to have a have a voice. Um, and I, I, I suppose a lot of readers will know, and maybe some some listeners won't know, but ends has been around now for for more than forty years. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, I think one thing people say about us a lot is that, that 
Well, we hope, we like to think so, but the ends is, is their Bible. So, it was, so people definitely rely on us for for um, news and news and um, intelligence in 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 a in a in a traditional way. And but I think I think the other the other thing that I think is special about Ed, ends is that it's always had this this kind of bit of an edge about it. And and I think people when when we when we kind of say stuff, people people listen to it and and sort of related to that. I think we as a brand and as an editorial team. Um, with people that care deeply about the environment, and we're expert about the environment, and um, and we've thought hard about our position on stuff like this. And I, I guess it's that we, we we don't campaign on these issues, but we 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 have a strong sense of what's right and wrong, and and we will expose bad behaviour. So that's kind of the context of where this is coming from. And I guess the other thing is that we're we're kind of aware that the way that people consume information is changing. So so. Like a lot of other titles, we're kind of publishing things in different ways. So um, you're listening to podcasts, which is fairly new, but but this is another another way that we can we can sort of expand our content mix and um, and that, I suppose that doesn't mean that the the stuff that we provide we're not going to stop providing the the news and features and analysis that we're, we've always been providing, but we're, we're in in future that that our audience will will see a, more of this sort of thing in in the coming months and years, and we're, we're kind of quite excited about it. Yeah. And you can do so many different things with different media. We're kind of discovering slightly late in the day, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think it's it's really interesting. And you can show more, you know, personal sides and to be able to to show things that are happening rather than describe them. I think it can be quite powerful as well. I mean, I spoke to in, in the making of the documentary um, a lifeboat helmsman who got very very ill after training in the River Seven, and he's got quite a. a graphic way of explaining just how the illness impacted him i will i will hope that you will go and watch the the film it's out on the 27th the trailer will be out um by the end of this day we, we are on tuesday the 20th of september right now um so you can check out the trailer on ends report now or you can uh, wait and see the full thing on the 27th of september anyway he goes into great detail about how ill he was and he was very ill um he was hospitalized for a long time and he's an ex-marine so he's not exactly a kind of gentle sort of sick, sickly type um and also we uh interviewed a uh a lavenet fisherman so that's kind of a sort of very traditional way of fishing um using sort of handheld nets standing in the river catching salmon and things like that and so he's witnessed throughout his whole life the way the salmon has changed from you know from sort of from being relatively healthy to you know a lot, a lot of the fish and the creatures that he used to see not not being there anymore so he can give this sort of witness testimony but i think one of the most interesting things well, I think it's all equally interesting because it all, it's all part of the same story. Um, then we have uh, three environment agency whistleblowers who have come onto the documentary in various forms um, to tell us about their experience on the agency, uh, within the agency rather. Um, Jamie, well, you've, you've seen the documentary. What do you think are the most interesting elements? Um, well, I think, as you say, I think that there, there, are, there are lots of different voices and I think... Um... I think I think you've mentioned this as well that it's kind of it's quite quite hard when you when you're close to it that you, to to kind of <laughs> to, to take a step back. But I think I think it's actually um, it, it kind of comes together to create quite a quite a um, compelling story. You have that you have the kind of local kind of human stuff, but then but then the, the I think what the having the testimony of the environment agency whistleblowers what that does is it kind of makes the makes the point very clearly that that this is not just about the river seven there's there's a kind of systemic problem here and yeah. and um the, the the unless those 
failings are, are, are tackled, then then things aren't going to get better, and they're probably just going to get mm-hmm. going to get worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think the the the, uh, the other thing that's kind of I, th- I I guess as someone that's not been as closely involved as you have been in, in making the documentary, but you can kind of get the I think you get the sense that it's a an issue that is rapidly moving and and becoming higher and higher profile. And I think mm. that that kind of comes across when when towards the end when when you, you can sort of see the what the government's done or, or not done and um, mm. and things it, it is definitely an issue that is um, is now to some extent mainstream and, and and hopefully what this documentary will do will, will kind of keep it at the forefront of people's minds. Yeah. I hope so. Very much hope so. So if you want to watch a documentary, and I really hope you do, because the more people that engage with it, the more likely we are to make another one. And maybe they'll get a bigger budget this time. And maybe we will. you will see us on Netflix. Um, possibly not. But you can find this documentary on theenergyport.com forward slash seven. Remember, it's got an R in it. And um, that's going to be free to view from the 27th of September for a week. I highly recommend you go and see it. So that brings us to the end of our deep dive section. And we are going to move on now to Knowing Me, Knowing EU. Simon Pickstone and Alice Fillon are here to bring you the latest on green policy from Brussels. And in this episode, they're looking at hydrogen. Over to you, Alice and Simon. Thank you, Rachel. Uh, And today we're looking at the green hydrogen debate. Um, So Simon, first and foremost... What's green hydrogen? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a it's a trickier question than maybe you would think. Green hydrogen, in essence, is the process of splitting water into oxygen and hydrogen using an electrolyzer powered by renewable electricity. So that's electricity from the wind or the sun, basically. Okay, so so far so good. Sounds pretty green. Um, so. Are there any other conditions that producers have to fulfill before they're <laughs> declared green in well, the EU? It's interesting you should say that, Alice, because this is a big debate at the moment in the European Parliament in Brussels, slash Strasbourg, can't forget. Mm-hmm. Um, last week, we had a big vote in the European Parliament on the Renewable Energy Directive, which we've talked about before. It's a huge piece of legislation setting out a bunch of uh, conditions for uh, promoting renewable energy in the EU. Yeah, and just to be clear, this is the recast of that. Yeah, so it's already been recast twice. It's been revised twice. This is the third time it's been revised. It's the pillar uh, of energy. Exactly, yeah. And it's to, it's to basically ramp up EU renewable energy deployment to meet quite ambitious targets for 2030. There's a, there's, a, there's a section of the Renewable Energy Directive that deals with green energy carriers, renewable fuels of non-biological origin. Yeah. Um, basically, that's hydrogen-based fuels. And the debate in the European Parliament was about what conditions you need in order to class your hydrogen as green under this particular section of the Renewable Energy Directive. And then the original idea, if I'm not mistaken, was uh, additionality, which is a bit of an obscure term. Yes. People in the, in the EU simply love to talk about additionality, which means absolutely nothing to most people. Additionality is basically a condition where if you are, say, Alice, or a green hydrogen producer, you would have to tell the authorities where you've got your electricity from yep. in, that you're using to produce your green hydrogen. And you would basically have a requirement to show that the electricity you were using for your green hydrogen was coming from 
specially deployed renewable energy sources. So you couldn't yeah. just take it from an existing wind farm or existing solar farm. You had to prove that this wind farm or the solar plant had been built specifically to service the green hydrogen industry. Yeah, so the idea behind that is to use um, renewable electricity that wouldn't otherwise have been produced so that you're not taking it from other uses for renewable energy. Exactly that, exactly that. The big fear, The big fear would be, if we really ramped up renewable hydrogen, green hydrogen production using existing sources of renewable power, um, we would basically cannibalize the renewable energy market in the EU and you'd end up having other users of electricity forced to use dirtier sources of electricity. So it's basically a way of boosting the entire EU renewable power supply while we increase production of green hydrogen. Yeah. Um, the issue in the European Parliament was basically around this additionality requirement, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the conservative parties within the European Parliament wanted to take away the ability to set those requirements from the European Commission. So if you remember the European Commission, that's kind of the executive branch of the EU. Yeah. So they normally propose laws. And typically they kind of, they also have some power in terms of um, delegated regulations for um, more technical um, conditions. Yeah, exactly that. So the European Commission wanted to set a delegated act setting out the conditions for additionality in green hydrogen. European Parliament voted last week to say, no, we don't want that. We want to be able to determine the conditions under which hydrogen can be classed as green. So they voted a text um, that includes certain conditions for when additionality requirements would have to come into force and they, they'd like it to come into force by 2030. A draft delegated act from the Commission, by contrast, once additionality requirements are coming to force from 2027. So that would mean from 2027, your electrolyzer would have to be using additional sources of renewable power. So there's there's two things there then. There's kind of uh, removing the power to decide from the commission back into the directive directly and moving the date of application back. Exactly that. Yeah, exactly that. So there's something that the hydrogen lobby in Brussels has been very, very outspoken about. They're really, they were really keen on 2030 as the uh, end date for that transition period. They were saying, oh, if we have it at 2027, that's going to cause chaos for us. We're an emerging industry. I mean, that seems quite Investment far. will flow elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard for me to assess, assess exactly um, how seriously to take those claims. And a new thing that they're saying is because the US is now um, through the Inflation Reduction Act that Biden has passed, uh, now agreed to basically pump billions and billions of dollars into green hydrogen production. Mm -hmm. And so they're basically worried that investment would, I mean, they're yes. at least saying that investment is more likely now to go to the US or Canada or Australia than it would to go to the EU. Yeah, so, so they're they say looking they to basically remove barriers to stay competitive. Exactly, exactly, exactly. On the other hand, you have the green groups who say, this is all a bit, this is all a bit over the top. Um, we, they, everyone, everyone kind of agrees that we need a bit of a transition period for green hydrogen. We need yeah, to get this sounds, industry up yeah. and running. They think 2030 is too late. Mm. Um, and interestingly, actually, I got hold of a leaked document last week at about the time when the vote was going on in Parliament that suggests that the European Commission, having listened to the feedback from the hydrogen lobby, is now considering actually um, a transition period that would last up into 2030, the end of 2036. So that would actually be really, really generous. Um, that's that's not published. That's just something that was passed to me. 
Um, so it's not clear whether the commission will end up um, pushing for that. The uncertainty we now have is that obviously the file now being passed by the European Parliament isn't by any means the end of the story. So now it's going to go to a trilogue with the council and the commission, right? They're going to discuss it and come to an agreement together. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So the the, the member states, as the EU Council, have, have now a, a, approved their own negotiating position on the file. And so, yeah, we're going to have to wait and see what the outcome of the negotiations is with ME, between MEPs and the, and, and, the and, the, and the council, yeah. So why why is there such a desire to push for green hydrogen production? I mean, I think everyone now basically agrees that we will need some green hydrogen production. We need quite a lot, quite a lot of it. I think in in the UK context, we have a lot of um, propaganda, I would say, from certain vested interests that we would be using green hydrogen to heat our houses or cook on, which Mm. is simply not, sorry, but it's not going to be the case. We're not going to be using green hydrogen for our boilers. We're going to be, but we will need it for industrial applications like creating um, green steel. We'll need it as a feedstock for chemicals. We'll need it as a fuel for airplanes and ships potentially. Yeah, because essentially the the role of green hydrogen is to substitute for renewable electricity where that is not such an attractive exactly, exactly. proposition. And that's the whole but that's the whole logic of additionality as well is when you're creating green hydrogen, which is not it's crucial to say not an energy source, it's simply an energy carrier. Yep. That's an extremely inefficient process. You need a lot of electricity to produce not very much green hydrogen. And that's the whole reason why we have these additionality or, or, or talk yeah. around additionality, mm-hmm. because basically you you want to be doing that as little as possible. It's always going to be more efficient to directly use electricity than it is to convert that electricity into another energy carrier. And so when when is it that we would use hydrogen over electricity? Yeah, I mean, like I say, I think it's for these industrial uses like steel, chemicals, um, heavy, heavy transport. Yeah. Wh- why is it useful in that context? But, well, well, in steel making, for instance, you need something to replace coking coal. So coking coal, that's pure, basically coal that you've baked in an oxygen free environment. Mm-hmm. You, you basically drive off the impurities from coal you end up with basically pure carbon. You then use that pure carbon in a blast furnace, which you react with iron ore, basically reduces the iron ore. So it takes the oxygen content from the iron ore, reacts with the carbon, you create CO2 as a result of that. So coke is basically an essential feedstock. You can replace coke with hydrogen. So you react the hydrogen with iron ore to create water vapor. Mm. And then you end up with iron at the end of that process, pig iron. So that's a that's a process where you definitely need green hydrogen. You also will probably need green hydrogen in, in heavy transport um, and aviation because it's simply energy denser. It's more dense as an energy yeah. source than batteries will ever be. Um, and yeah, you so also need that as a feedstock in yeah. the chemical industry because you, you need a source of hydrogen. You, I mean, the whole chemical industry revolves around hydrocarbons. So you, 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 you just need something okay. to replace natural gas or, or whatever your fossil input is at the moment. Mm. Okay. And on that note, back to you, Rachel. And that brings us to the end of this episode of the Eco Chamber. Thank you to Jamie Carpenter, Tess Colley, Simon Pickstone and Alice Villan. If you're interested in hearing more about any of the stories you've been discussing today, please head over to energyreport.com where you'll find more information than you could possibly ever need and a documentary this time. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and we'll see you next time.